Coming up on the Money Beat podcast, the U.S. economy created 242,000 jobs in February. Sounds like a good number. Is it a good number? We'll talk about it with BlackRock's Jeff Rosenberg. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Everything you need to know about money and the markets, and then some. Welcome to the Money Beat Podcast. Paul Vini and Stephen Grosser in the studio here with you on this Jobs Friday, the non-farm payrolls report released by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, 8.30 a.m. The numbers, 242,000 jobs were created in February, and the unemployment rate, the official unemployment rate, stayed at 4.9%. To break it all down, we are lucky to have with us this afternoon Jeffrey Rosenberg, who's the managing director at BlackRock, and he's uh, he's a chief investment strategist for the fixed income department there. Jeff, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me on, guys. So uh, Grocer and I have definite feelings about these jobs reports, as, as we always do, but I want to get your take first. So what did you what did you make of the report? What stood out to you? What did you like? What did you not like? Well, you know, the first thing is people are going to focus on the headline figure. And, Mm -hmm. you know, like you were saying about feelings about the payroll report, people put way too much stock about what kind of information there is really coming out of this. And we we are going to get into that and we're going to get into all the details. But the the big message here, and it's been the message for a long time, is that the pace of job creation has been very strong and has been very resilient to any of the external shocks that we've seen financial markets certainly in the first two months of the year react to. So 242 you know, brings us back up to that plus 200 or 200 plus kind of level. And that's, that's the main thing that I think the headline reaction of the markets are, are focused on. The headline is on non-firm payrolls. I'm going to pivot in a second to some of the other less focused on aspects of the report. But the mm-hmm. first takeaway is, is certainly that, you know, coming in above expectations, uh, that's, a, that's, that's a good sign here that you're not seeing any of the spillover effects from some of the uh, recessionary signals that the markets were concerned about in the beginning of the year uh, in this jobs report. What about wages? Because that was the sort of counterbalance to the headline number. Exactly. And that's where I was going to go. And, and that, that's what you know, we in the fixed income markets are really much more focused on the wage figures than we are on the headline figures. The headline figures have tremendous variability. They have tremendous revisions. So the information content in the headline payrolls, even though the market focuses on it, it's just a very, very volatile number. The wage figure is volatile as well. But we had a big print in January. And you look back at what was really problematic about the January report is you had stronger wages and weaker payrolls. The combination is a bad uh, cocktail for financial markets, and we got the opposite of that this time. We got strong payrolls on the headline, and we got weaker wages. Now, weaker wages sounds like a bad thing, but from the fixed income market's perspective, and I think from the equity market's perspective as well, the issue is is what the Fed is concerned about, and what drives the likelihood of the pace of normalization is the wage picture much more than the headline payroll picture. And the wage picture, while coming in negative sounds negative, really what it is is it's, it's not accelerating, and it wasn't anywhere near the point two that people were expecting, but more importantly, wasn't a surprise to the upside that people would have feared that would have brought about the needs for the Fed to raise their pace of normalization faster. And the markets are okay with Fed normalization as long as it's gradual. Wage inflation says the Fed can't be gradual and that we didn't get that wage inflation says that the Fed can be gradual. That's why you're seeing a little bit of a positive reaction in the equity market. Yeah, it seems like what you got was a headline number that 
sort of allayed some of the recession fears and continued sort of a string of good economic news. And then the wages sort of re- reduced that sort of fear of inflation and the Fed needing to act quicker and maybe uh, speed up the pace of um, raising rates uh, going forward this year. That, that, is, that is exactly my reading of it. And that's the, it's, the, it's the inverse of what we saw happen in January's report that, that really exacerbated some of the, the concerns and, and was treated as, as risk-off. Now, again, and to my opening comments, this is one day's reaction, and this certainly doesn't address any of those longer-run issues. But in the minutiae analysis of what one day's information means, it does set a bit of a tone for the month, and it sets a bit of a tone certainly for the day. And that's, the I think, the interpretation that the markets are giving it for today. You know, when I when I look at those wage numbers, and there are two things that, that stick out to me, and they're, they're more what they say about the economy fundamentally. And I remember it's it's got to be almost two years ago where Janet Yellen, the, the current Fed chairwoman, said that, you know, and, it, and it's true, a wage growth number that would reflect a healthy economy should be at least somewhere around 3 or 4%. We have not gotten there at all. And month after month, Jeff, I do this on – we do a live blog in the morning. We, we live blog the jobs report and we go through the numbers and we rip apart the report. And month after month, I do this exercise where I look at the sectors that created the most amount of jobs and then I go to – I think it's table B8 actually if you're interested folks at home, uh, which shows the wages. And it shows you the, 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 the weekly, the hourly and the annual you know, weekly wages, the growth from month to month, from year to year. And invariably, the, way, the sectors that are creating the most jobs have some of the lowest wages. And the sectors that are creating really good jobs, well-paying jobs, are not creating as many jobs. They are creating jobs, but they're not creating as many jobs. So what you end up with is, you know, you look at these headline numbers and they seem pretty good, but most of the jobs being created are in low-paying industries and they're not paying great wages and you're not seeing great wage growth overall anyhow. Uh, I don't even know if there's a question in there for you, Jeffrey Rosenberg from BlackRock. It's just something that I see month after month after month. What does that say about where this economy is? Well, that's that's the question, right? Which is which is we're, we're talking about the minutia of one month's wage number relative to expectations, but you're drawing back on the bigger story here, which is there has been, given the amount of improvement in headline payrolls, given the amount of improvement in headline unemployment rates, what we've been missing is a bigger improvement in wages. Where is the wage growth? The wage growth has been missing. And it's not just talking about why today we have a negative number. Mm -hmm. It's why we haven't really broken out two higher wage growth numbers. Year-over-year wage growth numbers have been running. 2.2 is what today's number was. The survey was 2.5. Last month was 2.5. We're around that 2.5 and below. We should be breaking out historically around these levels or even earlier based on this unemployment rate. And this is the whole issue about mm-hmm. the shadow inventory, the lack of uh, the, the, the mismeasurement of the unemployment rate and, and the, the lack of participation. So let me just highlight two things here. Well, the other number that we haven't talked about yet is labor force participation right, rates right. ticked up again. And this is now showing a definitive trend that Janet Yellen has been highlighting and going back years and waiting for, and it never really showed up. And by the time everybody gave up on labor force participation coming back in, we're starting to see it increase. That 
is good news and bad news. Good news is more people are finding jobs, so it brings more people back into the labor market. Bad news is that highlights the fact that there's still a lot more slack, and so you don't need to pay the people that are in the labor pool more to, 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 to work, and that's pressuring on, on wage inflation. So you have a bit of a, a story there. But the other thing here is simply the lags. And the lags are the last thing to move in the labor market is wage inflation. And we are starting to see, with the appropriate lags, that wage inflation tick up, excluding this month's figure. And we think this month's figure, uh, if you look at some of the subcomponents, you look at the drop in professional and business services, we think that's just a, that's just a data error. And if you look yeah, at the long-term here, history there, you see a lot of these, these aberrational spikes. If you take that out, we are starting to see wage inflation. And every other measure is showing wage inflation. And that's good news for the real economy. It puts more spending power into consumers. It's bad news, however, for the financial economy because of what this report is all about, falling productivity, the lack of seeing that spending power translate into real consumption means that you're getting margin compression. And so it's a bit of good news, bad news here. Good news for the real economy, good news for Main Street, not such good news for Wall Street when you look at not hmm. today's reaction, because today Wall Street is cheering this for the reasons right. I outlined before. But, but from the longer-term perspective, there's a bit of concern here about margin pressure when you're having what we think you're going to eventually see over the longer run is, is rising wage inflation. Hmm. All right, let's take a quick break, and we will come back on the other side of this important message. Hi, this is Veronica Dagger. Catch me midweek every week on Watching Your Wealth, where you learn all you need to know about building your wealth and protecting your money. Check us out at WSJ.com slash podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at WSJ Podcasts and become a subscriber on iTunes. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, Money Beat. Welcome back to the Money Beat podcast. Paul Vigna, Stephen Grosser, and BlackRock's Jeffrey Rosenberg here today. And uh, look, we will be back. Look later for the Friday food fight. We wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be a Friday without the food fight. We'll be in the studio again a little later on, hashing out uh, some, some terrible things. Grosser and I are going to have a big fight, I think. I think we're going to have a big fight, aren't we? I doubt it. No, probably not. <laughs> I'm trying to ramp people up. Uh, and later this month, Mervyn King, we are going to have him on the podcast, former governor of the Bank of England. He's got a book out. He's got a lot to say in that book. We're going to have him here. So keep an eye out for that one. But right now, let's get back, Jeff Rosenberg, to the, the jobs report, what it means for the economy, what it means for the Fed. Uh, I, I want to talk about this number in relation to the, the recession fears that were really pervasive the first couple of months you know, it seems to me that even during all that talk about the recession and the problems, and I know the January number was weak, but in general, the jobs numbers have been the one kind of strong, strong part of the economy of the, the, the usual month's flow of data. So why would this report change my opinion about whether or not the economy is going into recession if the jobs reports have been pretty good overall anyhow? I don't really think it should. And, you know, when we had those recession fears, and, and we still have those recession fears in terms of the tail risks of the outlook when we look across the outlook for 2016, it was not about this part of the economy. Mm -hmm. It was really about the manufacturing part of the economy and then the threats to the external sectors, right, what's going on globally, and the potential that those external shocks could spill over, undermining business confidence, undermining consumer confidence, and then eventually show up in the labor markets. But what the issue with the labor markets is they are the most lagging indicators of the economy. We're looking at what 
has been happening months ago when we're looking at what's going on in hiring. So I don't think we can take much away from the fundamental picture. But the markets will trade off of this report on a short-term basis, certainly. And certainly the idea about how this impacts the Fed and monetary policy is more about what's driving the financial markets, what's driving the bond market today, than any indications about what this means about recession. I'm going to come back and make one other point, but let me just pause there. Okay, because uh, okay, you mentioned you mentioned the Fed, which is uh, well, I mean, the, Fed the a, markets, which is on everyone's mind, of course. I mean, and that's the big question: Does this move up in any way that the market's expectation of when the Fed will act, and also does it move up when the Fed can act? This jobs report on it, raising it, rates. Well, it, it certainly moves up the market's expectation because market expectations were, were so low. Yeah. So mm-hmm. when we hit the lows in terms of interest rates on February 11th, I think is the date, effectively the market was pricing zero probability of any action in 2016. So clearly in hindsight now that looks to be an overreaction and the rise in bond yields that we see today about five basis points in the five year, for example, is saying, yes, now this is another piece of data that changes the assessment of how we should be pricing the Fed. And certainly the bond markets uh, are signaling that more increases or more likelihood of increases for the June meeting are now being priced back back into the market. Hmm. When I look at the fixed income market, and I have to say it's, it's – you can be honest with us too, Jeff. It's just us and the listeners. You know, uh, do you guys feel a little? You feel a little Schadenfreude when you look over at the stock market, right? Come on, you do. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> come on, you can tell us. There's just a, a fundamental difference, right, be, between bond people and, and stock people yeah. because of the asset classes that we represent. So it. it tends to, to be you get a, a different a different perspective a different a different message uh, so I'll leave it there okay. <laughs> that's a good place to leave it but when you look at the the bond market and especially you know not just US bonds but I mean the global picture clearly interest rates are are in in I'll say it, they're insanely low in some places I mean we're talking about negative rates, negative rates yeah. um, what fundamental picture is the fixed income market sending right now? Oh, it's it's very clear. You know, the, the rates are only insanely low if you're if you're locked into a backward-looking perspective, mm-hmm. right? And and we're all locked into a backward-looking perspective because depending on our age, we we grew up in the age of inflation, or we grew up in the age of fighting inflation. Yeah. And we're and many people are still fighting the last war, but you know you got to look forward and you got to look at the reality and and the reality is we're not fighting inflation anymore and we haven't been fighting inflation for a very long time really since the the great the, the global financial crisis we are fighting deflation and in a deflationary environment you know your perspective on what is the right level for interest rates has to change and it has to be with respect to the deflationary environment as opposed to the inflationary environment of the of the past so you know it, it, technically if you if you yes negative interest rates seem crazy but if you really are facing deflation then there is a, a fundamental case and let me be careful here cuz i'm not a fan <laughs> of negative interest rate sure. policy and i think that the boj introduced negative interest rate policy and i think we saw that it it it, it is backfired right yeah but when you ha- when if you were in technical deflation there is an argument for why you would have negative rates because the 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 saving the storage value of a bond in a deflationary environment is is going up 
Uh, now, we're, we're clearly not in that environment. We actually have pretty good inflation right. in the U.S. We have 1.7% inflation. But in the rest of the world, we don't. And this is the global perspective that people have to keep in mind as well when thinking about you know, the ownership of treasuries, the importance of the dollar in the global financial system. The world buys our treasuries, and the rest of the world faces zero interest rates and negative interest rates and very low interest rates, which makes our, relative, our interest rates look relatively attractive. So that's another factor that, that makes interest rates lower than they might otherwise would be because of the importance of treasuries in the global portfolio. One of the questions uh, is sort of getting to the central banks and the sort of diverging policies that we're now seeing around the world. And it seems like the economic data that we've seen recently out of the U.S. suggests that it's going to continue to be diverging. What does that mean for the bond market uh, going forward this year? So we've had this theme in this conversation about divergence uh, for, for a while now, and, and I think it's pretty clear that there's a, there's a real problem with divergence. Can you really have divergent monetary policy? Uh, can you have this divergent of monetary right. policy? Mm-hmm. Because when you do, when you build up those expectations, we know what the response is, and the response is in currencies. But yeah. we can't have such big currency movements without creating some other problems, some feedback mechanisms. So the feedback mechanisms are pretty clear now. We have divergent economic policies leading to divergent expectations for monetary policies, which leads to a major strengthening of the dollar, which leads to major tightening in financial conditions. That's what the Fed calls it. What does that mean? It means that it makes it that much more difficult to fund and to service global debts denominated in dollars when my underlying cash flows are not. So for the rest of the world, a big tightening in dollars, I'm sorry, a big increase in dollars tightens financial conditions and it presses on financial market uncertainty. And it does it through a number of factors. It raises the cost of servicing debt, it raises mm-hmm. the effective currency mismatch, and if I'm talking about a commodity producer whose cash flows are denominated in commodity-related instruments, the strengthening of the dollar tends to be associated with the declining currencies, uh, sorry, commodity prices. Uh, now, certainly, the commodity story is a, a huge supply-demand story, but the currency aspect in there is there as well. And the combination is really the story from January and February. And today's payroll report has very little to do with it and doesn't solve any of those issues. And those issues are still overhanging the market. Well, you know, and correct me if, if I'm wrong, Jeff. I mean, the situation you're talking about, I think a lot of people were were at least, were somehow hoping that that G20 meeting was going to produce something that might change that situation. And we've got a very milk toast comment out of the G20, some, you know, very vague pledges of, of, of action, but nothing concrete. So how long can a situation like the one you just described persist? Well, what I described was really a, a, a situation that that can't persist, That meaning mm-hmm. that you, you can't pursue domestic orientated only policies where the policy transmission mechanism is, is through the currency. Uh, there, was a, there was a really good speech that didn't get any coverage, uh, I think, in, in most U.S. media, which was Mark Carney's speech around the G20 uh, at the end of last week, where, where he basically laid out the case for, for a, a much more, not explicitly harmonized, but, but at least a rationalized approach mm-hmm. to global monetary policy, and that the exchange rate channel, 
which implicitly many of the global monetary policymakers have been using. No one explicitly acknowledges this, but implicitly it's, it's, it's quite clear that this is one of the main means of transmission, mm-hmm. is, is doomed to fail. And so you can't have that as your main policy lever. And, and, and what came out of the G20 was an attempt at, at an answer, which is the recognition that monetary policy alone can't do all the heavy lifting. Mm-hmm. And if you leave divergent economic policies to be addre- – I mean, divergent economic outcomes to be addressed solely through divergent monetary policy solutions, we're not going to solve the problems. What is the alternative solution or the necessary solutions? Fiscal and structural mm-hmm. reforms. Right. that can address these issues that ultimately result in what? Increasing domestic demand. That's the point of fiscal and structural reform, is to get your domestic demand growing so that rather than trying to borrow somebody else's domestic demand or export somebody else's excess supply, which is the exchange rate mechanism, you implement policies that help to bolster the world economy by growing your own domestic demand. And that is a very nice sentiment, but it has right. not been you know, in, in, in place. Right. right. Well, and look, I mean, you, you look at what's going on in Europe right now, and they're, they, they, they can't come to a, a real agreement on the, the, um, the migrant problems. You have the British talking about Brexit. And, you know, in Spain, they have a lot of contingency. I mean, the, my point is the leadership in Europe is not very harmonized. And then you look here, I don't know how many people saw the debate last night, but our political leaders are not very harmonized. And so you have all these central bankers saying, we can't do it. We need the fiscal authorities to step in and help. Uh, we've known that for years. The fiscal authorities show no real appetite for doing that. And boom, here we are. I mean, and that's why you want to have, you know, a fair amount of bonds in your portfolio. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Jeff Rosenberg from yeah. BlackRock, man. We were, that was nice. That was well done. We really set you up for that one well, huh? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. No, no, it's good. It's good. I mean, I guess the, the final question, you know, is on everyone's mind as, the, you know, the market, the S&P is back over 2,000. The Dow is over, you know, 17,000. Uh, are, are we out of the sort of recession fears or is there still reason to be worried about a recession? So, you know, we just have to talk about the investment horizon. So certainly over short horizons, we had a lot of recession fears. Those appear with with the help of some data. Uh, You know, it's not just today's data. It's a lot of other recent data um, coming out of the U.S. um, that's helped. You've had policy intervention that the markets are at least initially treating uh, with risk on, see the PBOC's initiatives on the currency and the fiscal policy. So the the tide is certainly turned on the near-term market reaction to recessionary fears. However, you know, the, here's the big here's the big problem. <laughs> none of the none of the, the the issues that have driven a lot of these fears are, are being fundamentally addressed mm-hmm. by by any of these by any of these factors. The data is suggestive that perhaps now is not uh, the immediacy of the recession, but the threats to that and the vulnerabilities are, are still are still quite clear. So, you know, we we've had a, a pretty defensive outlook for 2016. I write a sorry for the shameless plug here, guys. But I, write a, uh, I write a monthly commentary, and my my year ahead outlook it was this oil themed theme called "There Will Be Blood." So, you know, it's it, it's it's about the longer term structural issues uh, coming out of commodities in China and these external shocks, and that that that's 
very much with us. We have to be cognizant in the short run that markets don't move in one direction. And certainly, and, and we've gotten more uh, optimistically and bullishly positioned and inclined and over the short run, but the longer run projection, meaning when we take a one-year, two-year outlook, is we're very late in the economic cycle. And the mm-hmm. credit cycle, which is the other part of our fixed income markets, looking at what's going on in private credits, those markets have been signaling some very important risks that are, are developing. And those are messages that we have to pay attention to because they're, they're telling us that this is, this is not uh, mid-cycle or, or some idiosyncratic issue. These are, these are very deep-rooted fundamental issues that financial markets have to, have to address. Right. Um, and addressing them at this late stage in the business cycle, as well as with such little monetary policy ammunition, and to the points about the political um, uh, uh, intransigence that, that forestalls a real credible fiscal or structural policy response coming anytime within a reasonable time horizon, it, it makes the outlook pretty vulnerable. And so we don't want to get over our skis with the, uh, with the, with the re- reaction yeah. Uh, in the market. Uh, I, I'm not mothballing my foxhole. I'll just put it that way. Jeff Rosenberg, Managing Director and Chief Investment Strategist for Fixed Income at BlackRock. Thanks a lot. I really appreciated it. Great. Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks uh, a lot. Everyone, come back later for the food fight.